we're doing Leviticus 8 through 11 today, I believe. So we're going to be catching up. I know that we, the initial podcast from 1 through 5, Jared did a great job, I think, setting the foundation for this book. And that really helped to kind of clarify what's really happening, aside from the ceremonial and ritualistic stuff that God was doing with the Israelites. This section of Leviticus, we're really talking about consecrating Aaron and his sons to the Levitical priesthood. Some repetition going on again as to, so everything else before Moses was given instructions and in how to carry out those bunch of different sacrifices on the altar and then, you know, different types of offerings. Now, they're actually training Aaron and his sons on how to carry out all those. So basically, they're in boot camp right now, learning how to be good priests and follow all of God's commandments. And the penalty, if they didn't do it, like, will learn what happened to his sons who didn't follow through. And they were killed instantaneously. So God is very, very serious. If he's this serious about what's happening in the tabernacle and the offerings, his two sons were killed because they made a bad offering, we should honor and look at it a little bit more carefully and not just bypass it thinking it's not as important when it is. Because it was serious enough back then, I don't think we can ignore it today. So we'll just get started. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, just a little bit tired. Every time this weather comes around, I get pretty I know. tired. Funny, when I was studying uh, the two chapters, I kept falling asleep. It's dark out now, like five o'clock so I don't blame you I get tired too like but I I reread it today again um and it looked like it was a lot of repetition of from the previous chapter but there's some few interesting things that we can talk about and I have a video to share today too so oh, awesome yeah so let me share my screen so Leviticus 8 says so talking about the constant creation of Aaron and his sons is basically sanctifying them, making them holy, and preparing them to become Levitical priests in the tabernacle. So I'll just start reading that. Before we uh, start, I wanted to get one thing, kind of the preface, the chapters that are coming up. Because basically, the Aaron and Aaron's sons are living symbols. And so a lot of people don't necessarily understand the importance of uh, getting everything right and having such harsh penalties. It's like, well, they just messed up a little ritual. Why is God so judgmental? And it's just like, well, these were types and shadows of what was to come. Yeah. Um, so to mess up a symbol is to actually misinterpret what was to come. It was an abomination because... These were all types and symbols of the redemption that would manifest later 2,000 years in the figure of Christ and to and his ministry. So when you get one of these rituals wrong, you're actually doing a false prophecy. You're, you're uh, lying to the people. And to, to do something like that is consequential. You cannot afford to. Because if you pass down something that is not original to what God said, then the whole plan for salvation will become distorted and people will have false ideas. And then when Christ comes, no one will really understand. It's like there it, it would be changing the priesthood where if it was allowed for them to live and do like something that God did not want, that would taint the whole priesthood from thereafter. And it would people wouldn't appreciate uh, what Christ would have 
like as a high priest that he came to do. And also to emphasize that too, distort that which is already a type of shadow is actually just to burn the whole ritual itself. Yeah. And to make it as if it was not. Yep, that's great. I think that's right on what you said about, you know, explaining why this, like, it it may look like a harsh penalty, but in, in all reality, God had a plan. And then he also, I think he wanted to make the tabernacle itself holy, that it wasn't commonplace as what they could do outside. There's a lot of symbolism, but then there's also practical things like nobody should dishonor God in any way. And I think mm -hmm. by not following him, that essentially what they thought, they kind of took it laxy-daisy kind of approach to it. But God was serious. Okay, so, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull for sin offering and two rams and a basket of unleavened bread and gather all congregations together at the end entrance of the tent of meeting and Moses did as the Lord commanded and the assembly was gathered together at the entrance of the tent meeting Moses said to the congregation this is the thing which the Lord commanded to be done Moses brought Aaron and his sons washed them with water and then he put the tunic on him and tied the sash around him and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod upon him and he girdled girded him with the decorated band of the ephod and bound the ephod to him and he put the breastplate on him he also put urim and huminin in the breastplate then he put the turban on his head and also the turban at the front he put the golden plate the holy crown as the lord commanded moses um so i wanted to kind of refresh what that ephod was that was the the row of stones, total of 12, I believe, that they wore on their chest. The purpose was that was a way to communicate with God on the questions that the people had or the priests would have. And the only the anointed priest could wear that and get that direct connection with God and no one else could. So basically, they would ask God whatever questions that they were concerned with. And through the Spirit of God, somehow that would be answered. But I, I looked up Urim and Huminin to see what they were. And I guess it's some sort of stones or something that they kept in their pocket. So I was going to play this video because this rabbi explains it better than I could. Uh, so we'll just watch this for a second. Can I make one comment? Yep. A connection that I made to the 12 disciples is the 12 stones as well. Because what did the disciples do? They asked God himself questions about the end about what was taking place about the parables so actually the priest bringing the 12 stones in them being the way to communicate with the people is the same way that the 12 disciples is a similar thing as the 12 disciples communicating to all of christendom wow that's great i don't think I would have put that together. I do know that 12 represented the 12 tribes. I didn't realize that would also connect like you did with the 12 apostles who were asking questions. But since they no longer are with us, we're just going directly to God to answer those questions, right? Well, the traditions and, of course, the biblical literature that the disciples passed down is also the way we communicate with God as well. So of the word of God and what they have written down and what they said, and what they asked Christ already, I think it, it all applies 
um, no matter what way you want to look at it. And also the 12 disciples spirits are in heaven right now witnessing Christ. I would say that the disciples aren't dead in the way that a oh, non-believer yeah. would be right. dead. They, they're um, resting in Christ right now until the bodily resurrection. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I guess through our communication is really through the word of God is what we're doing right now. But mm. what do you think about when we have direct questions that things that we want to ask, but we're not able to really ask, but we have to read through to figure out what his will is for us? What? Do, how do you think that gets answered? And through the through prayer, the Holy Spirit, and yeah. reading the word of God and following the traditions of the apostles. Yeah, good point. This is from Linda. Linda says in Exodus 28, the breastplate of the high priest was made with stones mounted on it. The names of the sons of Israel were engraved on the stones. The Urim and Thummim were put into the breastplate. And when the high priest had an important question to ask God, and I have read that the letters of the names of the sons would light up letters to give the answer to the question, but there are only four letters in the Hebrew alphabet that are not found in the names of the sons. How would the answer be given if the answer contained one of the letters uh, that were not in the names? So let me just tell you, Linda, you asked the most excellent question because the idea that the letters would light out, light up, and that would be how God would give an answer in the breastplate is purely fantasy. So let me explain the Urim and Thummim to you. And it's separate from the breastpiece. It is true that Urim and Thummim were carried in a pocket behind it. Urim, by the way, Urim is very easy for us to understand. It means light. Thummim, we're not so sure about, but somehow it would give a determination. It would be a decision. Uh, somehow it would give an indicator of a decision. Uh, and the way that the best sources that I've found on this that address this is this is the way it would work. Um, the the Urim was a very distinctive stone. And the Thuman was actually, Im means plural too. It was two stones that felt exactly alike. So let's say that the question that came before the high priest, and by the way, these were yes, no questions. The question is, and this is the example that we're given, should, David came and said, should I pursue the Philistines further? Or should I end the battle now? And he went to the high priest, and the high priest gave answer, and the answer was in the affirmative that he should pursue the Philistines. He did, and there was a great victory. They also used this when uh, they had the remnant of Judah come back, and there was some question about whether or not some of those coming back, were they truly priests? And so the question is, the man would come forth, and the question would be asked, am I a Kohen? Am I a priest? before the Lord, and the Urim and Thummim would come out. Now, this is the best explanation I can give to you. We obviously don't have these available to us that we can confirm, but let me tell you the best information we have. What the high priest would do is he would reach in, and he would grab one of the stones of the Thummim. He didn't know which one. He would grab the Urim, the light, and he would pull them out, and he would hold them. Now, the Thummim would either say yes or no, but the answer coming from the Lord would be verified that, yes, this is an answer from the Lord if the Urim became illuminated. If it lit up, then it meant the answer you've received is the answer of the Lord. It has come from the Lord. And the high priest had that ability. He would drop them back in. He would be posed another question. He would reach in. If, if the Urim did not illuminate, I don't care what you got in the other result, it's not an answer from the Lord. Don't act on it. The Lord doesn't want to answer that question. Uh, and if he did want to answer, this is the way it would be answered. Yes or no. But you had to pose the question to the priest, and the priest was to give answer to that specific question. This is how the Lord would work through the high priest to give immediate direction to the children of Israel or the king on any particular situation. So, Urim represented the lights, the Thummim represented the decision uh, stone. And these were plural. This was, uh, uh, the plural here is referring to it was lights in the stone. Lights, many lights would light up in the stone, uh, indicating that the God was giving the answer. Now, there are some theories about, oh, the breastplate flow would light up like a Christmas tree direction or matrix thing and has nothing to do with it. Uh, the Urim and Thummim were self-contained. They were able to do that all on their own and it had no difference to do with the others. Now, 
I cannot say what I've said to you with absolute, positive, 100% certainty. I am giving you what I consider to be the 99 percentile definition on this based on a host of ancient Jewish sources. That's the best answer I can give to you about the Urim and Thummim. Um, but we obviously don't have it. And by the way, the prophecy talks about the judgment would come to us and we would lose the breast piece and we wouldn't have the benefit of the Urim and Thummim in the days that we live. And there's no anticipation about getting those back until the Messiah returns. For us. We are a people without that ability to do that with Okay, well, they're still waiting for their Messiah, but I think he gave a good explanation as far as what those things were. What do you think about that? I think that's uh, actually pretty consistent with the times and traditions of the, the period. Hebrews were very much uh, wandering the desert because it was very commonplace for ancient cultures to use geomancy and use random, like a uh, random kind of divination tactics not to say that this was but this is what god actually commanded them to do so this is something that they came up i mean it does kind of look like the magic eight ball thing right um yes or no but But it's like casting lots yeah you see that in the new testament as well it's just kind of like refer to that yeah casting but it it's different because the there's actually a uh, miracle associated with it which is a stone being illuminated days was not possible you can't illuminate a stone well only god could right so when god right gave them these instructions this was a way for the high priest to communicate directly with god for any specific answer and like you said if it was god's will the stones would light up and then that's how they confirmed it that's actually way the god wanted my point about it being similar to other forms of divination is not to say that it was divination but rather it would have been something that the israelites most basic people would understand living in egypt it wouldn't be something that's heretical so to speak but it would be something the common man would would understand very much it's not a complex process there are other versions like without god a lot of pagan religions actually still do that today they're looking for those divination answers like reading the tea leaves the magic ape you know all those uh horoscopes all these things are Mm -hmm. kind of related where they would cast out a yes or no answer and then base their life decisions on that where this was the holy spirit in a in a sense that god was there answering them through his spirit the only question i would ask is if god was already speaking to moses and you know before uh, the few others why didn't he just speak directly to the high priest why have them do this ritual at all do you remember what happened when uh, Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and he came back yeah. down? He Everybody was freaked them. out. They, oh, they, yeah. didn't, they didn't want anything to do with him. And they were freaked out by God, too. Because like when you're in the presence of a holy, all-powerful God and you're with able by his grace to withstand that, you're going to be illuminated in such a way it is going to cause the darkness inside every man, woman, and child to want to flee. Oh, wow. Well, I wish I could see that today. <laughs> Make the whole, you know. You, you can. You can. You have to go through the process of becoming holy as Christ. Yeah. Is. You have to put on the the virtues and the armor of God. I think that's something that's kind of lost in practice. Like, I yeah. think that's the importance of fasting, the importance of these Christian traditions that we have today, like fasting and re- remembrance uh, of those who have fallen asleep in the Lord and those who have been martyrs 
the importance of, of those things is so that you can actually put on the virtues yeah. and so that you're thinking about Christ and, and sacrificing your life for him. And I don't just mean um, allowing somebody to kill you for the sake of Christ, but I mean sacrificing every day unto Christ, which yeah, I'm I mean, uh, very much far from. Yeah, isn't it our life is basically being sanctified every single day until we're finally taken up? It seems to me that each person has their own journey and how God has to sanctify them and make them holy. And that's kind of like our life is a representation of that. Um, well, we also we also have free will and are able to participate in that or not. Well, I'm assuming if a believer wants to give over their life to God and allow the Holy Spirit to actually change us from within. So, yeah, I think that process, I mean, it looks different than what's going on here, but it's probably the same idea that we're being sanctified. Verse 10, Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle, all that was within it, and sanctified them. He sprinkled oil on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all his vessels both the laver and his stand to sanctify them. Then he poured some of the anointing oil on the head of Aaron and anointed him to sanctify him. Moses brought the sons of Aaron and put tunics on them and girded them with sashes and put headbands on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Think about the anointing oil. You think that's something that we could do today as well, or is that only reserved for priesthood? Well, Christians already have this practice. Yeah, um, it's called chrismation, which is the anointing. They pour oil on your head. Um, it's it's commonplace in the Orthodox and Catholic Church. Like, how do you anoint? Let's say today. Well, a priest would have to do it. Those sects of Christianity. So it's not something you can do on your own. Like, pour a little. Oil. Um, I think you'd have. I think it'd be inappropriate if you did it yourself. Oh, really? Or I think. Why would it be? Yeah. So I think it's something that has to be passed down, like we read in Timothy, the laying of hands and, and anointing of other individuals to be in places of the church um, or even be part of a body. I think actually these rituals are important. Not many churches that do that today. Most Protestants, no, absolutely no Protestant churches or non-denominational churches do that. But yeah. In a lot of ways, it's just because of the whole um, cultural American kind of idea of individualism is kind of taken over Western Christendom. So we're actually divorced very much from the original um, Church of Acts. And we, we, sure. we carry close to zero tradition. The only tradition I think Protestants and evangelicals have is the Bible. And that's even pretty loose at this point. <laughs> yeah well that's why we're reading it the anointing uh, is obviously a representation of the holy spirit by baptism today would be sort of akin to anointing oil um i think that's yeah but i would separate chrismation i would separate anointing and baptism because i think they are definitely two different things because we actually have categorically we have we have a categorically a wash which is more of a baptism yeah. I think they're two separate things. Yeah, I do think they're two separate things. But it is kind of interesting that, you know, because a lot of Christians, I have heard they say that they anoint themselves with oil and they'll anoint like their household and stuff. 
with oil, just like how Moses was doing that. He sprinkled a little bit on all the vessels, the labor to stand, to sanctify them. I think at, at this point, it's, uh, you should be a godly, virtuous person if you're going to anoint yourself or somebody else with well, oil. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but I mean, I was thinking more as a believer. I guess this is something that probably because I've seen people talk about it and they do it, but uh, I'm not totally hundred percent. You know, I don't, I don't have enough information to know whether this should have been done only by priests. I mean, here obviously it is, but whether that can carry over to an individual. Yeah, I think. Need that. I think there's uh, quite a bit of freedom in Christ as far as these things are. And I, I don't understand all of it as well. So, yeah, but that's something to come back to later. I'm sure the Bible will explain it more. Verse 14 He brought the bull for the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull for the sin offering. He slaughtered it, and Moses took the blood and put it on the horns of the altar around it with his fingers and purified the altar and poured the blood at the base of the altar and sanctified it to make reconciliation on it. He took all the fat that was on the entrails and appendages above the liver and two kidneys with their fat and Moses burned them on the altar, but the bull and his hide and his flesh and his refuse he burned with the fire outside the camp as Lord commanded Moses. So this is a same repetition for the sin offering that was um, when they offered the bull. So they would take part of it uh, and burn it on the altar, and then the rest would go outside the camp as a sin offering and burn it there. Um, do you have anything to add on this particular verse? You typified Christ, the great high priest, who both offered and was offered for our reconciliation with God. Holy Spirit, therefore, although Christ alone was the sacrifice, the Holy Trinity was involved in the reconciliation of man. So it's a typification of all three. Because it's all three um, in the Trinity were involved in our reconciliation, although Christ, the Son of God, was the the sacrifice. So he's kind of making a reference with him as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is that what you Exactly. You're... Yeah. Yeah. All right. Then he brought the ram for the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. He killed it. Moses sprinkled the blood on the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. Uh, he washed the entrails and the legs in water and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. And it was a burnt offering for the pleasing aroma and the food offering made by fire to the Lord. And as the Lord commanded Moses. I don't remember what I wrote before, but I did look up the definitions for the bull and the ram and how it was applied in the bible and i think i wrote a description in the last the, our first podcast put it in the comments as to what it meant and i think that was actually maybe referencing god as a shepherd in some way mm. but i totally forgot so what do you think about the bull and the ram i think you're on to something there but i th also think it's uh a, a representation of the trinity as well the bull is the father but I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. One of the things that the Israelites did in the desert right um, when yeah, the, Moses the was on the mountain is yeah. they had the, the, the bull to represent God. Now, did they have the bull or the calf? 
Because that might be a the cap, the golden cap. So that yeah, so it was a cap. Male. It wouldn't have been a bowl. What I gathered from before was that bowl kind of represented the father, like you said. And then the ram might have been actually referring to his son. Yeah, well, that makes sense because what did uh, Abraham sacrifice? Uh, what was the replacement for Abraham? Yeah. It was a ram caught in the thicket, right. and that was a, obviously a, a typification of uh, Christ. And I think it came in a different way. Like we always referred to the sacrifice as a lamb, Jesus as a lamb, but he may also be the ram too. Um, yeah. I mean, there, this could be the use of synonyms in, in um, Hebrew or Greek. Because so, yeah. sometimes, like in English, we'll use like two of the two words that mean the same thing basically because a lamb can be a two-year-old ram yeah it could except the ram have the horns where they well a lamb te it just depends on how old the ram is whether yeah. you call it a ram or a lamb and i think if it's a two-year-old ram you would still call it a lamb either way it still kind of represents jesus and, in a way right I don't, it's not a ram until it's at least three years old i'm pretty sure right and Jesus' ministry was three years long, so. Oh, yeah. Huh. So you're saying that because the ram is older, like three years? I think so. I might be wrong on this, but I, in my memory, um, it, it it's kind of coming back to me. So I used to be involved with kind of like the Hebrew Roots movement back yeah. when I was a younger child. I do remember a two-year-old ram would be considered a lamb still. Oh, okay. I see. So it would have to be older. Yeah. Than in order that. to be referred as yeah. a ram. Okay. So next he brought the other ram and the ram of consecration. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. He slaughtered it. And Moses took some of his blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the thumb of his right hand and the big toe of his right foot. He brought the sons of Aaron and Moses. and Whoa. Wow. How did I not catch that when I read it? <laughs> What's what what did you see? So Moses took some blood of its took some of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron. Yeah. What happened to the ear of the man in the Garden of Gethsemane? Oh yeah. Jesus did a miracle on the right ear. Yep. And he, he healed a, healed a, a bloody year essentially yeah. that was cut off right. i never caught that very before. good at that <laughs> making these subtle connections that you could easily pass by so what do you think about the right foot then i'm not sure i'll have to i'll have to look into that one and the so thumb three things is the right ear the thumb and then the big toe so it's going from here to here to the big toe uh, all on the right side well, I do know there's a lot of uh, symbolism in, in the right hand of yeah. things. And to say the right hand isn't necessarily just a reference to the right hand. It's it's a reference to your strong, your strength. But so, I think because you made that connection with the right ear in the soldier who did the miracle, there must be some other thing with the thumb. So it's not just a hand, it's actually the thumb. And the big toe. So it's not even the whole foot. It's just a big toe right on top. It's also a symbol too. It's just like whatever you hear, make it holy. Whatever you do, make it holy. And wherever you go, make it holy. Yeah. Well, that's for sure. I can see that. But I wonder if something else happened with the thumb and the right foot that kind of, you know, maybe Jesus 
did some other miracles or something. Well, I mean, there was the lame man he healed. There was the man with the withered arm that he healed. I have a trigger memory, so anytime we <laughs> you talk about something, my brain just kind of lights up. <laughs> no, I love it. It's like all of a sudden you get an epiphany. I want to check to see if I can find the big toe reference. Oh, we're going to see a lot about it because it's mentioned over and over on Leviticus okay. 8 and then Leviticus 14, which we haven't. So again, the thumb and the big toe, which we'll read later. And then Judges, uh, it mentions to cut off his thumbs and big toes. So there's something about the thumbs and the big toes that's going on in two different books. Well, I know if you cut off the thumb or the big toe, your balance is rent. If you cut off your big toe, your balance is rendered useless. You have no balance. If you cut off your right thumb, you can't wield a weapon. Maybe like the the rudder of the boat kind of got taken out in a way of the human body. You can't navigate. Mm -hmm. This we're going to do later if if I ever get to do the Book of Judges. But then it does kind of mentioned that this is some sort of army tactic. Seventy kings whose thumbs and big toes were cut off once collected scraps of food under my table, just as I've done, as so God has repaid me. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. So there's something about right thumb and the big foot. So I yeah. don't, yeah, so I think it's good that at least we now are aware of this, that it something that maybe we have to watch out for when it comes up because everything like he's making a point why do this like to be able yeah. to simplify you know like it's it's such a, a weird way to go about doing that put blood on it it's also a reference to christ too because a christian without the blood of christ we cannot hear um, without christ we cannot function we cannot create things and what we use our hands for we use them to build to create things we can't create anything good and without our big toe, we'll just fall everywhere. It's, oh, it's yeah. also a, a reference to Christ enabling us to actually participate. Because without Christ, we have no participation with God. We can't do his will. We're falling everywhere. We can't hear. So then we can't be corrected. And it's a typification of all of those things as well. And we have no power. No, that's good. I like that. Because that actually kind of explains that really well, the symbolism that without Christ, we're not even functioning human beings. And it takes only a little thing to kind of take that out, right? It's not like cutting off big parts of your body. It only, like, if you lost just even a little bit, you stop functioning. Verse 25, he took the fat and the fatty tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the appendages above the liver and the two kidneys and their fat and their right thigh and out of the basket of the unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened cake and the cake of oiled bread and one wafer and put them on the fat on the right thigh. And he put all of these on the hands of Aaron and the hands of his son who waved them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them off their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. And this was a consecration of a, for a pleasing aroma and offering made by fire to the Lord. Moses took the breast and waved it and for a wave offering before the Lord. This was the ram. This part of the ram of consecration was for Moses as the Lord commanded Moses. So what do you think about this wave offering? That didn't come up before all of a sudden it's like... I mean, it was mentioned once before in a previous chapter, but it wasn't the main offerings that 
the original chapters kind of outline and all of a sudden now they're waving part of the food around what do you think that's all about I don't really have any thoughts on it and that's kind of what's intriguing me it's like because I don't know something <laughs> about, about the wave offering and it's yeah, I couldn't think of a thing why, because it didn't make any sense. All the other offerings made sense, but this did not make any sense to me. Like, why are they waving around? So it was a wave offering before the Lord. So like, and it's the breast of the animal, and then it's also consecrated, and was for Moses, right? So that was Aaron it for Moses. Did that eat? too? Yeah. So he put it in his hands first, and then he took it from them, and then he did the wave offering before the Lord. But it was fat on the right thigh. So they got the, Aaron and his sons got the right thigh, mm -hmm. while Moses well, got the rest. The right thigh, I can understand, because the right th thigh of Jacob was crippled by um, the angel of the Lord. The only connection I can kind of think of as far as like, the breast of anything is that the beloved son of, of Christ, I mean, the beloved disciple of Christ, John, rested on his bosom. So oh. perhaps it is a reference to the closeness that Moses has and the, the um, and how God actually finds friendship with men, a very sweet and pleasing aroma. So you think um, this is kind of like the friendship offering in a way? So I think... It, Yes, but on a deeper level, it's it's an expression of God's desire to be close to the heart of man yeah. and those who serve him. So really what's pleasing to God is to have a close relationship with us in right. our hearts, which is why maybe it's why that the um, breast of the animal is raised up and waved before the Lord. But this right thigh... Are you talking about Jacob when he wrestled with God? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that was a hip, not thigh. The thigh and the hip are at the same place. You want to just take a hip bone. <laughs> well, then maybe it's really kind of symbolically saying blessings to Aaron and his sons, and then mm -hmm. bosom friendship with Moses. Yeah. I, th I think that's that could be. Um, I definitely also think there could be something a bit more obvious that we might yeah. be missing just because we don't have the the historical or cultural references that the um, Jews of the time had. For sure. But, you know, the Bible should explain that, too, why they're doing these things. I think the earlier offerings, God did explain it, um, mm. plainly what they were for. This one, not so much. So I think it has to come up. It's kind of like this is an open question. If I had one of those stones, you know, yes or no, or direct answer to that would be great. But since we don't have it, uh, I'm assuming that the Bible at some point will have to finish that connection. Why thigh and why the breast wave offering, which is, you know, on its own, I don't think that really explains it enough. Yeah, I agree. I I'm not satisfied with the explanation I gave either. I think there's definitely good. more to it. <laughs> well, I like it. We just have to probably keep looking at it. Uh, okay. Verse 30. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and, and, and on his garments and on his sons and the garments of his sons with him and sanctified 
Aaron and his garments and his sons and the garments of his sons with him. So they just got sprinkling blood on their lovely garments, right? Yep. Moses said to Aaron, to his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent meeting and eat it there with the bread. There's a basket of consecrations, just as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it, which that which remains of the flesh and the bread, bread you shall burn up. You shall not go out the door of the tent meeting for seven days and until days of your consecration are at, at the end for your consecration will take seven days. What do you think about that? They have to stay at the tent meeting for seven days. I think there's so, any kind of reference to like why to, to sanctify them like that. I mean, seven has um, a lot of symbolism behind it. It's the number of completion, seven days. Yeah, on him to he rested on the seventh day. Yeah, it's a symbol of of spiritual rest in my mind and. For some reason, I keep thinking about the 7,000th year of, of uh, our history and how we're kind of, how that year is the year, perhaps the time in which Christ comes back. I think that too, although many probably don't. So my thing, I'm not saying it's right, but in my view of what I read so far, it seems to me that I do believe in the young earth. I don't believe in infinite amount of time i think mm -hmm. god was very precise he made it happen and when he judged because of the pressure and volume of the water it created all the terrains that we see now um and then life embedded in all kinds of ways because it was just a huge flood i think that's an example of what actually looks like not millions of years and fossilized stuff it actually probably happened within the 40 days that was flooding. The other thing, too, is it almost seems like a reference to those who, like our saints and who have died before, who are abiding with Christ, who will be resurrected bodily, but are now with him in spirit. Um, so maybe it's a typification of that as well, as, as they are spending, within the 7,000 years of human history, they're spending it with the Lord. Uh, human history hasn't gotten to 7,000 yet. We're only... Not yet. Close Not to 6,000. So I think from 6,000 to 7,000, or do you think it's actually seven to eight that you get that thousand years? I've got a bit of a different idea of what the thousand year reign is. I don't think it's actually a literal like time period because of the actual Greek term thou thousand there doesn't mean a literal like 1,000 years. It's actually a reference to a long span of time doesn't necessarily mean exactly a thousand years it's just what you would use in place of a large number that you're not sure of so i think right now actually we're in the thousand year reign because christ is reigning on the throne at god's right hand right now he went up to the father to rule and is ruling the but he christian done church that for two thousand years so far yeah that would happen. That's what I'm. That's record. what I'm saying. It's not a literal uh, thousand years. It's a description of a long time period. Yeah, that's if actually. You count, if you count his reign from the heavens, um, I kind of tend to think it's literal. Like he'll come back on Earth for a thousand years because he lets loose. Satan's let loose after a thousand years to deceive all the children that are still born during that time. And mm -hmm. then that judgment is very quick. And then 
end yeah. to Satan altogether. So, well, the devil is bound right now. I would uh, say the devil is bound. He can't do everything he wants to. He has to get permissions from the Lord. He he can't well, do he's anything restrained, he really like wants to. Restrainer, right? He's right. He's bound. It's yeah. the same word. Restrained or bound or, or basically the same word. And so the reason that I think this way is because as far as you go back in Christian history, um, this is kind of the the idea that it's not a thousand year. You can even go back to two hundred AD and they were saying similar things. So, but the thing is, if Christ was actually reigning now from heaven, the world he is reigning now. Hell. To say any different is heresy. Like it's it's he is reigning now. He's in charge. He's the at the right hand of, of the Father. Yeah, but I'm talking about the reigning when uh, he's essentially ruling the. He's not ruling the world per se. He's there reigning as a kingdom. But Satan still has a control of the world. So what I'm thinking is that if he actually comes back, because um, you get set on a whole thousand year of rest, which we don't see right now. There's nothing but turmoil. So how can that be where he's actually, because there's a lot of scripture that actually talks about that thousand years of peace and, you know, things that are uh, gentle and good for that entire time. Yeah, are you talking about Isaiah? Yeah, yeah, which yeah. I don't know right now. Um, so I, that's the only reason I don't think it's the literal thousand. I have, I have this, I have the same kind of conflict going on in my mind as well. So I don't know. I think it's something that none of us can really say definitively because it also doesn't make sense for like Christians to de be deceived again after a thousand years. Well, it's the children that get deceived. So, like, it wouldn't be us. Because um, I think they're allowed to have a lot of children during that time where everybody's content with Christ ruling the earth. And then once those children, maybe after a thousand years, maybe they forget God, too, or the ones that rebel. Yeah. And well, it also, it also could be maybe we're intertwining separate prophecies. So maybe what we're doing is we're intertwining the revelation prophecy with a different prophecy that's in Isaiah um, yeah. about separate time periods. I don't know for sure 100% about the um, whole thousand year thing. I do know that it, it doesn't tend to make a lot of sense either way. Which means that there's a mystery involved, which means that God probably hasn't revealed exactly what's going to happen, probably for our own benefit. Well, there's no concrete language right now, I guess, which is left to open because I think isn't there the book that's still yet to be opened at the end of days where oh, the seal? Daniel ate them, ate it or something. Yeah, it was sweet. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't allowed to be open until the very end. So maybe yeah. it'll reveal some of the mysteries that we keep encountering. Well, also, we have to remember that not all of the, the prophecies um, that Jesus fulfilled were physical. A lot of them were spiritual Yeah, prophecies. Like, take the temple. Of the, um, he said, I will raise up this temple in three days. He was talking about his body. Yeah. And it says in scripture that that's what he was referring to. He wasn't referring to 
the Solomon's temple. Right. Yeah. But the book explains it, you know, that that's what it's all about. And then. Right. But we're not in the eschaton yet. So it wouldn't be explained until then. Right. So I guess we'll find out as we go through it. Yeah. It's important for us not to be married to any one of these doctrines because kind of to be married to a interpretation is to put the the mind of men in a greater sanction than the mystery of God. Yeah, because we might miss the real thing, like how the Jews interpreted their Messiah not coming. And it's best to remember um, that it is to the glory of God to to hide it. What what is that exactly? To hide a matter. And it's the glory of kings to um, unveil it. Yeah, uh, as he has done this day, so the Lord has commanded what is done to make atonement for you. Therefore, you shall abide at the entrance of the tent meeting day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord that you do not die for so I have commanded. And so Aaron and his sons did the things which the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. So they were to stay in there so that they wouldn't die. Yeah. Which is pretty that's interesting, because that's kind of that's really interesting. Don't you think that kind of means like if we are in Christ, we are alive, but outside of that, we're dead. Yeah, and also outside the kingdom of God, there's just yeah, death. they're gonna die. So those who don't want the kingdom of God, that's their judgment. They're gonna yeah. die. So that's why I kind of like reading these, because I think if God is making a point to be this serious, then we can't just pretend like it's okay to do whatever today. Oh, okay. So this makes sense, too, on a um, kind of a meta level. Like, if man were to abide with God, he would live. Yeah. So there wouldn't be death. There would be rest. And what does seven signify? It signifies the rest and life with God. Yeah, so if you're outside of that, just like Adam and Eve, you know, the lie that was told to them that you surely shall not die, you you will be like God. But here it's clearly saying that uh, if you're not in God, then, you know, you will die mm-hmm. if they disobeyed those commandments. Also, the importance of it being seven days, too, is it's a completed thing. It's representing the completion of what God actually has in store for us. So God wants us to dwell with him in his house, in his kingdom forever and rest with him. Kind of communicating the symbol of seven days actually communicates that in time and space as much as you can. And the other thing I'm kind of getting a little epiphany of is that it took seven days to sanctify the priests and his sons. Then in a way, 7,000 years is a way to maybe sanctify all of humanity, those that are abiding in God. Mm -hmm. Like that's the end. There will be like, I kind of see that as a time clock. Yeah. It almost, it almost comes into like me thinking about the whole, like how maybe at the end of time, however much time we have left, there will be no more children born because we have just become so wicked and, and completely made our temples an abomination so that we can procreate. Yeah. But it's kind of like the whole process of giving us 7,000 years is the sanctification of humanity. Just like the mm-hmm. priests 
And look, I mean, mm-hmm. it's spiritual sanctification, right? To come to God and sort of follow him or not. Um, so this is chapter nine. The priestly ministry begins. So I think here they're repeating all the work that they've been taught on how to actually do the offerings and sacrifices. So yes. a lot of this is going to be repetition. Uh, and it came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. Then he said to Aaron, take a young calf for a sin offering and a ram for burnt offering without blemish and offer them before the Lord. To the children of Israel, you shall speak saying, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for the burnt offering. Also an ox and a ram for a peace offering to sacrifice before the Lord and the grain offering mixed with oil for today the Lord will appear to you. They brought that which Moses commanded before the tent of meeting and the entire congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord commanded that you should do and the glory of the Lord shall appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, go to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and offer sacrifice of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Aaron therefore went to the altar and slaughtered the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron brought the blood to him and he dipped his finger in the blood, put it on the horns of the altar, poured out the blood at the base of the altar but the fat and the kidneys and the appendages above the liver of the sin offering, he burnt on the altar and as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the hide he burned with fire outside the camp. He slaughtered a burnt offering and the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, which he sprinkled on the sides of the altar. They presented the burnt offering to him, which its pieces and the head, and he burned them on the altar. He then washed the entrails and the legs, and he burned them with burnt offering on the altar. So far, it looks exactly how they were trained. Moses were instructed in the previous chapter so far. What do you think about that? I think it's going over the importance of describing exactly how this takes place. This is the culmination of all the people as well. It's kind of going over everything in a summary. It's creating a picture for us. I think it's training, like boot camp training, because they're actually being prepared to do this themselves. Because it was Aaron and his son's job to actually do all these, carry out these offerings at the priest level. They're kind of learning. They're on training. They're on the job learning all this stuff. Yeah, so they're they're basically being told how, how the service yeah. is supposed to go. Yeah, he brought the people's offering and took the goat, which was a sin offering for the people and slaughtered it and offered it for sin as the first offering. And he brought the burnt offering and offered it according to its regulation. Then he brought the grain offering and took a handful of it and burnt it on the altar besides the burnt sacrifice of the morning. He slaughtered the ox and the ram as a sacrifice of the peace offerings for the people and the sons of Aaron presented blood to him, which he sprinkled on the sides of the altar and the fat of the ox and of the ram, a fatty tail, which that which covered the entrails and the kidneys and the appendages above the liver. They put the fat pieces on the breast and he burnt the fat on the altar. But the breast 
and the right thigh. Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord, just as Moses commanded. So there's definitely a wave offering, which dealt with the breast and the right thigh of any animal that they slaughtered, it looks like. Mm -hmm. The only other thing that I can also think of, too, is a sign of surrender. Oh, like waving the flag kind of thing? Yeah. But because it's a right thigh and the breast, and it seems like is of any one of those animals, like ox, ram, is specifically that piece of the animal. Yeah, it's, it's a surrendering of your heart and your will. Ah. I think ah. the right, because I think the right leg represents your movement where you want to move. Yeah. And then, of course, the heart is is where the will comes from, the movement comes from. So it's a surrendering of your movement as well as your will. Yeah, and, and it's asking. It's it's almost like asking for mercy as well. When you surrender, you're not just saying we lost. You're saying have mercy on us. Don't kill us all. Yeah, I think you're onto something with the wave offering because that's the tradition people have always used. When they wave, it's always signifying surrender. You know, like or other than saying hello, but when they're in distress or actually making that motion. Everybody in the world understands that as... Well, the other thing is, you, if you really want to get somebody's attention, you wave what they want. What God wants is your heart and your will and your action. Yeah, I think that it does have that significance of something that you're surrendering and then also trying to get attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it. Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them and came down from offering of sin offering, burnt offering, and peace offering. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all people. Glory of the Lord appeared to all of all the people. A fire came out from before the Lord, and it consumed the burnt offering and the fat that were on the altar. And when all the people saw this, they shouted and fell on their faces. Wow. So basically, they must have seen some like beam of fire or something. But today, I mean, they can use lasers to do the same thing. Like, you know, isn't there a verse that in the New Testament, uh, in Revelation or something, that the, the beast caused a fire to come down from the sky? Yeah, he called down fire from heaven. Yeah. So isn't this, are they trying to mimic what God was doing here? Of course. They, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because like Jews that exist today are looking for their Messiah. And they are looking for him to bring down fire from the sky. Right. I think that makes total sense now why yeah. that is, is like you always when you read it without this context, you wouldn't know like, oh, there's going to have some miracle fire coming up. Like, so what? But now I understand it. Why they're having the fire come down from the sky is because it's to represent God in the Old Testament of their God. Right, they're and not not just God. any old aspect of God, but God coming down in His fury. Yeah, so I think that pretty much explains what the beast wants to do. Hmm? So now we're in chapter ten, the death of Aaron's son because they screwed up, and it was a harsh penalty. So we'll figure out what they did here. Well, here's here's another very important thing too to understand about the end. The Antichrist will deny an aspect of the Trinity. He will deny that the Son of God came yeah because he he's going to 
basically say that I am. Oh, yeah. So basically we'll copy God saying, who are you? I am who I am. Right. I think he's going to yeah. the same stuff. Right. Because I, I feel like they'll do the miracle of this fire coming down where people are going to be at awe. You know, just like what did the Israelites do when they saw that? I think that's going to be something similar. Look at what they did. They fell down on their faces. They shouted and fell on their faces. So it's going to be kind of like that experience. This reminds me of the line from my new song that I wrote. Um, yeah. As I stand, 10,000 fall, bending knees to a devil's call. Wow. And then the rest the rest of the last course of the song, go, it, it starts off like that. And then it goes, are we the souls the angels fought for against these demons in a holy war? As the blood cries from the innocent, I am Armageddon. Yeah. Well, I can't. Is that song like, uh, are you about to finish it? or I, I'm finished with them. I'm about to release it. So. Oh, nice. How many songs are you releasing? Just just the one and then this one. That's all okay. I um, got enough money for. So, How much does it cost to do one song? To do it really well? Yeah. The way I did it, about two grand. Per song? Yeah. Wow. Because I had to pay session musicians to come in and then it took about six to ten hours just to mix the song so i had to pay for the sound engineer to mix it and then mastering took another like two to four hours and it's really a long process like there's you don't just record a song and with instruments and stuff you yeah. have to do a lot to mixing the instruments and getting everything balanced and then correcting any like room noise or any ambient sounds that might be going on or if a instrument or your voice was just off by like a little bit you can correct that as well um so there's just so much that goes into it and then you know are you able to work with people that are not in the area by sending them your files and that's that's what i did actually oh so so that means yeah. anybody if if you get the right people they could be anywhere yeah absolutely okay yep. well i'll try to I'm going to forward you somebody. Maybe he'll be able to help you on something. But let's talk about that later. The dead of Nadab and Abihu. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered the strange fire before the Lord, which he did not command them to do. Then the fire came out of the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, I will be sanctified by those who come near me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Um, so what was the strange fire that they offered before the Lord? Is it because of that incense? The censor, I know the censor in Revelation, God like threw that uh, as judgment on the earth, which had all the prayers of the saints in it as mm -hmm. incense. So these guys put, they, they made the censor or put fire in it and put incense in it. And it says offered strange fire before the Lord. So what, what do they mean by strange fire? It could it be that it wasn't like the all the other commandment specific ones, or is it something more to this? I think what we should do, maybe 
right now is look up the entomology of the word strange and fire. I think that might be, if you look up the Hebrew, I think that might be interesting. It just, it basically just means a fire offering that was not commanded by God. So they, of their own creativity and understanding, they did this ritual on their own. Something because that God I, sanctified them to lock, you know, to be inside the camp for seven days where they had all this training and exactly what to do. And then these guys just come up and then started making incense offering, basically. Well, they made they brought in a man-made device is a sensor that incenses things. And from all of the references below, the incense that goes up to the Lord had nothing to do with the mechanisms of man. So there's a principle here that is completely and utterly violated, essentially. Um, and that is nothing made by, it's nothing made by human hands is to be presented to the Lord. You know, a lot of people worship with incense throughout, you know, Eastern cultures and stuff. They use a lot of incense in their prayers and then they do that with their idols. I guess that's kind of taking off on the idea that they did something that was not ordained by God, but yet we do know that um, pagan rituals kind of use that as a way to offer things to God too, this whole incense thing. Well, incense in and of itself is not bad. Like having incense, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I'm not talking about like burning it in your home or anything. I'm talking specifically offering incense to their idols so that's oh yeah that was very much a custom yeah yeah absolutely so that kind of took off on the idea of what these two sons did on which is still happening today i see them in different cultures in the east particularly Mm -hmm. they do do that they well there's also um in the catholic and eastern orthodox church there's censors with incense in christian settings as well yeah, which according to this, God did not ordain that for priesthood. Yeah, for the for the time, He did not ordain that. Absolutely. But I think that um, would, that's a mistake for any church or priesthood to do that anywhere. Well, I wouldn't say that because then you'd also have to say you shouldn't be playing electric guitars or drums or any of that in church either, because those are all man-made objects. No, I'm, well. I'm talking about specifically with the incense as offered to God as an offering, which it's not the same thing as modern life, keep going. I think it has something to do with the the idea that God ordained a certain way mm-hmm. to sanctify his priests, and we already talked about all the symbology um, for yeah. today, but the fact that these two sons who were supposed to be holy, they just got sanctified for all this time in the previous chapter. And then they went ahead and did something on their own that was sort of in a way that I do recognize as a pagan ritual today. Um, oh, you know what it is? It's what? Cain. It's Cain's offering. They cheated God. Oh, yeah. So think about it. They did it the easy way. They made a fragrant aroma the cheap and easy way. Oh, the too pleasing. To, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think, okay. So let's stay on this. They, they cheated God, essentially. Yeah. They didn't sacrifice anything. 
They have the ain't no blood was spilt. And so how could that satisfy God? It was it was meaningless. It was cheating. It was cheap. They were bypassing the pleasing aroma to the Lord with the incense. Mm-hmm. Over yep. each time they did their offerings, it was like pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then even the ple- pleasing, like the grain offering, they had to put frankincense on it. Yep. Um, and it had to be just, it had to be wheat. Yeah. Like it, it had to be something you grew. Right. It couldn't be easy, you see. Like, they were doing what was convenient for them. I think that's what Sin it is. Came. That's what like, it is. And I think that's why I see like other religions do this because it's an easy way mm. for them to think that they're pleasing aroma, offering prayers. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. That's what it is. It's the they were bypassing the pleasing aroma part and why these they were even doing it in the first place. All right. Moses called Michelle. And El-Savan, and the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near and carry your brothers from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them in their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And I'm thinking this out of the camp thing is because they sinned. Remember, all the sin offerings were outside the camp. So that's why they had to be taken out, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, do not let your hair be loosely disheveled, nor rend your clothes, lest you die, and lest wrath come upon all the people. Instead, let your brothers and the whole house of Israel mourn the burning which the Lord has caused. So why not have, like, they will die if they kept their clothes untidy and their hair loose. Yeah, so it's just emphasizing the importance of doing everything the way God has commanded. Yeah. So they're not trying to cut any corners or do anything haphazardly. Yeah, it was a serious command. Like if you do not cheat God. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that's maybe the whole message is not to cheat God out of anything. Uh, You shall not go out from the entrance of the tent meeting lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you, and they did according to the word of Moses. So, okay, so they shall not go out of the entrance. So because they had the anointing oil on them of the Lord, they weren't allowed to go out from the entrance of the tent of the meeting. But weren't they just going outside to take them out to the camp? Did I read it wrong? Oh, it's different signs. These two sons were of the uncle of Aaron. Okay. Yeah. So they, they took the bodies outside. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they, the, the other sons were, the sons were not allowed. The sons right. of Aaron were not allowed to go outside the tent yet. Cause yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Uncle's sons were allowed to go take the bodies outside the camp, but Aaron's sons had to stay inside the camp. And they were because they were anointed oil of the Lord was upon them. And then the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, do not drink wine nor strong drink you or your sons with you. When you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die, it will be a perpetual statute throughout your generation so that you may differentiate between what is holy and common between unclean and clean. And so you may teach your children of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by hand of Moses. 
So I kind of found this interesting. There's a couple things here. So it's not telling you that they couldn't drink. It's just that they couldn't drink inside the tabernacle. The point that God was making was that inside the tabernacle, everything was holy. And then outside, what was common and so inside the tabernacle, everything was clean. Outside was unclean. I have a connection. Yeah. Do you remember in the Last Supper where Jesus said he's he has the cup and he says I will and he said take this or I will not take this until you are with me. Um, basically, Christ isn't going to be taking that cup until his disciples are with him in paradise. So, oh, as a okay. So the drink. So explain that with what is being said here. So do not drink wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting. So the tent of meeting in, in this case would be a representation of, of heaven. How yeah. Christ is not going to drink from the wine until we are all with him in heaven. Okay. And right now he is not, he's not drinking. He's not. Oh, I see. So Christ is not drinking in, um, I think I know what you're saying, but how does that relate to the, the holy and the common and unclean and the clean? Well, it's also, it also has to do with being sober because you don't, you don't want to be unsober when attending to God, um, because then everything you do will be corrupted. Well, that's, yeah, that's for sure. I think that. You wouldn't want the priest to be drunk inside the tabernacle or tipsy or whatever, right? Because it's talking about strong drink. But isn't he also making a point like inside the tabernacle, it's a holy place? Oh, it's a holy place. place. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So you don't have strong drink and liquor inside the holy place of God because God's not a drunkard. So what about since the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, then maybe it, isn't it kind of implying that we should not get tipsy or drunk either? I don't think you should get tipsy or drunk at all. I think drinking is fine as long as you do it in moderation. But um, yeah, getting drunk is definitely a sin. But I, I wouldn't go as far as be a prohibitionist and say like, never drink wine ever. It's bad. No, no, yeah. I, yeah, I think, but I'm only kind of looking at it in terms of what God thinks of his house, where he dwells mm -hmm. as holy and clean. That's obvious by now, right? Tabernacle is holy and clean. But then that dwelling place is now moved from that tent into our physical bodies. Mm. Although we're allowed to do any of those things, but I'm wondering if... The problem I would have is, of course, uh, drinking the body and blood of Christ. Because that's wine and bread, right? Oh, yeah. The communion. So... Part. Yeah, communion would be wine and, and bread. So, I mean, like, you can't take things too far. Otherwise, you'll... you'll but you know what? That's probably also making to. that point, too, that something happened where the priests were not allowed to drink wine or strong drink, but yet Jesus is at the table saying, drink wine to, in remembrance of me and my body with the bread and the wine, right? Mm. Isn't that kind of opposite of what's going on here, though? Because he's also... Yeah. A high priest. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that. Well, the high priest. Well, Jesus is a high priest. So, of course, Jesus yeah. wouldn't be drinking his own blood because it's his. I so don't know. Speak. So I mean, it makes sense for the priest to drink wine. 
Yeah, but I'm just saying because Jesus is a high priest and this was a commandment to the Levitical priesthood that they couldn't drink wine or strong drink, but yet Jesus as high priest is drinking wine and making a reference that that's his body or his blood. I don't know. That's something to think about because it's kind of the opposite direction of what this is saying here. Hmm. Yeah. It is interesting. And so you may teach the children of Israel all the statues that the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. This keeps coming up a lot. The hand of Moses. Um, there was a reference in Exodus that God took his uh, strong hand to lead the Israel out, out of the Egypt. So like there was a, a reference to the right hand and the forehead, which meant he took the strong hand uh, of the people and took them out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. And then the forehead was to, they were to keep remembrance of him to take them out of Egypt. But then here, I've seen that now a couple times by the hand of Moses. Um, so there, there could be another um, symbol like you're speaking of, but also to speak by the hand of Moses is to speak by the power of Moses. Like his authority? Because his hand was was a symbol of authority. Yeah, um, that makes sense, that it was by his authority. And I think that's important to understand, too, because God does bestow authority upon his servants. Yeah. And that we, we ought to submit to that authority. Yeah, if they are righteous, the problem yeah. gets confusing when the leaders go their own way and you can't tell. <laughs> well, I would say that actually Jesus gives an answer to that because um, basically the disciples asked that question because the Pharisees were being wicked. Jesus still said that they have the seed of Moses and to still do what they say, but don't do as they do. Well, let's say the government today tells you you got to take some chemical in your body. You still have to do that? No, absolutely not. No. Um, so there's context in which it would make sense which what christ would say would make sense because it wasn't everything that the pharisees said was untrue yeah it was just that they were to respect the authority of the pharisees they were not to rebel against them understand what about like, the government today do people allow to rebel against them or keep on so the government today is not a religious authority Oh, so it's only applying to religious leaders? I, yeah, so in that, the situation I'm talking about specifically is specifically applying to religious leaders uh, um, of of God's ordained But synagogue. then God also ordained the governmental leadership. But in a different sense. It's yeah. not in the same sense. Like, you have to take things each in their context. So government authority is different than religious authority. Um, they're different categories. They work differently. Um, they're not the same thing. Like even, yeah. even you see this in the Bible where the Kings have responsibilities and the priests have authorities as well. And they're very different. Priests were never allowed to go to war. There are different, different um, things that they're allowed and not allowed to do. Just like in governments, even today, like all governments have these kinds of um, accommodations for religious uh, yeah. groups whether it's Islam or Christianity. So you have to take things in their proper category. You can't just apply 
um, something Jesus said in a different context. So like when he says, listen to the Pharisees and do as they say, he's not saying, hey, the Romans are going to come in and they want to inject you with some stuff. Let them do that. You know, <laughs> that's totally cool. Yeah. He's talking about like a religious structure that was ordained by God. And the Pharisee, the synagogues and all of that stuff and the priests and the high priests were ordained by God. You should respect the authority of those who are ordained or those who have been been ordained. What about how do we know which of the religious leader system is ordained by God today? I mean, they all claim to be, you know, appointed by God, like the entire Catholic Church system thinks they're in replace of God to act out whatever they're doing. Yeah, and like the in Judaism, same thing. Yeah, so I would say go with the most historically consistent and the most actually sound doctrinal church. And right now I'm I'm kind of on that journey of finding that. Like, what's the true church of Christ? Who actually has the authority? And for me, I've found it's the Eastern Orthodox Church, not the Catholic Church. That's what I'm coming to find anyway not all the way there yet otherwise i would be an eastern orthodox christian but i'm not yet which i don't know anything about that yet i kind of just look at the bible and see what i'm supposed to be doing or not so verse 12 moses spoke to aaron and to elazar and ithamar his sons who were left take the grain offering that remains of the food offerings of the lord made by fire and eat it without leavened bread besides the altar for it is most holy and you shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due from the food sacrifices of the Lord made by fire. For so I have been commanded. The breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place and you and your sons and your daughters with you. For they are your due and your son's due, which are given out of the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the children of Israel's. Um, so I guess here they did mention sons and daughters mm -hmm. to eat all of this stuff as a wave offering and peace offering. Thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the fat pieces of the food offerings made by fire to wave them as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you as a perpetual statue as the Lord has commanded. Moses diligently sought the goat of the sin offering and saw it, and it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, who were left alive, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the sacred area, knowing that it was the most holy and was given, and God has given it to you to bear the inequity of the congregation to make an atonement for them before the Lord? Its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. Indeed, you should have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. Aaron said to Moses, Today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, should it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? And then Moses heard that and he approved. Mm -hmm. Why did he eat it? So I know that Moses got mad at him for not eating, for not eating it. it. Yeah. But then um, the part that I'm a little confused in is that if I had eaten the sin offering today, 
should it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? Why would he say that? I, I didn't read anywhere that they couldn't eat it. Huh. In my mind, the only thing he could be referencing is the sin that's upon his family. Because his family sinned in that day. Oh. And the offering was presented to the Lord that day. Then that that sin offering wouldn't have been for his sin. It would have been for previous sins. And because the sin offering was made that day previously, then it would not have covered that sin. So therefore, that offering specifically would not have accommodated for the sin that had transpired. Mm. And so he didn't feel right to eat the offering for um, his family, his sons. It, it's almost like he saw it as a failure of him to teach his sons proper things and that's why oh, they died yeah. and so the sin was also upon him and his whole family right when his son sinned so it wouldn't have been right for him to partake in an offering that was incorrectly that would have been basically made an abomination by his sons so he kind of would have had to offer his own offering like was mm -hmm. they commanded in uh the earlier chapters that if a priest sinned he was to bring a bull Mm -hmm. Like a male, yeah, bull uh, without blemish, and then go through the ritual as a sin offering, which was to take the blood and parts of it, burn it on the altar, and then the rest would have to go outside the camp. Mm -hmm. So this, and if his sons sinned, and they were sort of taken outside the camp too to be buried or whatever, so weren't they kind of the? Well, his sons were supposed to eat it too. Yeah, But they sinned, so they couldn't eat it, and God killed them. So even that would be confusing to Aaron as well. So I, it makes sense that Aaron didn't eat the, the goat offering because this is very this would have been a very confusing thing for him because he wouldn't be sure like to eat of it because of the sin that happened previously. Well, the other thing was each food offering that they get is the most holy. Mm -hmm. So he would yeah. be partaking in that offering the most holy but yet they're the one who actually sinned so that meant they would be eating before they could offer the bull offering themselves mm -hmm. yep that kind of makes sense okay yeah so, so then um, moses basically said yes you're right you yeah should. yeah so we're done for today do you have any other thoughts on this no i mean like that was that's a lot of a lot of stuff to really think about yeah i mean there's a lot of references to things and thing new things that came up the the wave offering the fire down and you know the things that we talked about i think uh some of the open questions that we don't really have good answers for just yet mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, as we go through it we might get those answers but i think it was kind of interesting at least what I saw in these, the incense thing, that was a good connection that you made that that was cheating God for the pleasing aroma and these guys mm -hmm. were offering it and incense. But I also know that I've seen this, that the incense praying offering is a way to like a lot of pagan worship. And like you said, even Catholicism priests do this instead where it's clear contradiction that that's not what God was talking about, that you don't offer those incense. And there's another verse later on where it says, I hate the stench of your incense offerings or something like that. 
Yeah, he's like you. You practice your your you practice the letter of the law, but your your hearts are far from. Yeah, me. I'm not convinced that offering God incense is a bad bad thing. But in in this time period, it would have been completely and utterly preposterous to offer God such a cheap sacrifice, especially the, yeah, given the I context. So it does mean context, but I also think at some point God would have to define it if they're starting to offer incense offerings or incense yeah offerings. yeah but so far from genesis to where we are today uh there's no indication that god said i will take your incense offering yeah i i understand why like there's the symbol of incense in the christian churches of the catholics and then the eastern orthodox it's it's a symbol it's not an offering it's a symbol of uh the holy spirit basically it could be, as long as it's not an offering. But we do know, like, in judgment time, the incense or the scepter. Right. Oh, yeah. That's what the incense represents. It represents the prayers of the saints. Yeah. So in, in the Orthodox Church and in the Catholic Church, that's what it represents there as well. So it's like, it's a it's a symbol for the New Covenant, so to speak. Oh. Um, because in Revelation, you actually have a liturgical service happening in the heavenlies so maybe that's why god didn't want it maybe yeah it was like a reference if it's reference to the new covenant then that could be a no-no at that point right it would have been a total wrong time and and timing is very important to god so i think what's important for us to understand is that well something i've come to understand recently is because i was always afraid that everything like things being pagan was a bad thing but nothing is pagan you know, it depends on the, like the intention of your heart behind us, uh, gesture too. all the things that God made in this world are good, right? Yeah. Incense is good. You know, being able to manipulate objects to make machines is good, but using them in a context in which is inappropriate to like idols. It, um, well, that's the context is worshiping other gods. He's a jealous. Exactly. I can see that. It's also like, I feel like a lot of this older traditions, probably were taken from the bible but they misused it in the wrong mm-hmm. context and that became like religious cult of its own you know yes well there's yeah. nothing more terrible than taking a holy thing and then manipulating it and yeah making it unholy. like that's that's an abomination then that's oh, like so what, what do you think that abomination was talked about in revelation about uh, when you see the abomination so i'm wondering if it's tied to some of this stuff that we're reading right now oh so in my like something that just came upon me what is more abominable than satan having his man declaring himself to be god in what is a representation of the most holy place being oh, yeah. the third temple and yeah. also also what's more abominable than also marking every human being that's made in the image of god and marking them with a symbol of the devil. You oh, can't yeah. get more of an abomination. Like yeah. that that's you're you're basically doing everything you can to make the holy profane. Now we're going off a little topic from Leviticus, but I'm thinking that the marking because the Holy Spirit, we are now the new temple. The Holy Spirit resides in us. Mm-hmm. And if the marking is on us physically somehow then maybe that abomination of declaring himself as god and marking us perhaps it has to do with something internal of our bodies you think i think it has to do with all three 
Yeah. It's probably going to be all three, the body, mind, and soul. Yeah. So you're going to just, it's not going to just be a physical mark. It'll be a mark on your oh, mind spiritual and your, and, your yeah. soul. So you have think, to worship the beast. So that's spiritual. Mm -hmm. So it affects all three. And I think that the reason that um, Satan has to have an embodiment is so that he can affect all three. Yeah. Well, this was awesome. So I will see you next week whenever you're ready. I was so excited. Like, it's the questions that we come to when we read scripture that really is. Yeah. It really gets me excited to know I don't understand something. Oh, there's a lot I don't understand. I mean, yeah. I feel like I'm just going on a moving train in one direction. And I'm like, oh, I have all these questions that are unanswered. You well, know. I hope I don't sound arrogant because that's not what I meant. No, 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 no. You sound like there's, there's a lot of things that I don't understand. And it, it excites me because I don't understand it. It's something I can seek out. That's what yeah. I'm No, because of you, I'm able to grasp some of these things because what you're really good at is that you remember these things from the new testament you're not necessarily thinking about any verse but you say oh you know like i see the excitement in you like oh, i figured that out you know that it was part of this symbology in new testament that i think you probably have some wise gift to you to be able to do that that's why i sought you out the very first day because i thought oh he's has this ability to see things in a certain way well, so, glory be to God, because I'm nothing special without him. Well, God is with you, so He re he's revealing your gifts through him, you know, so yes. grateful for that. Okay. I well, thank you so much again. This was so much fun. Um, I'm glad, because I want to I want to keep doing this with you, so as long as yeah, you have is... the time to do it. I never asked you if you wanted to do it more than one book, but that's up to you, if you want to keep going or not. I mean, there, I do, yeah. Yeah, you do? this is this is a lot of fun and it, and it gets me more in the word of god which is great because i've been really struggling with that um used to be really really into reading god's word and i kind of fell off just with having the family so you're kind of an answer to prayer in a lot of ways i was saying the same thing about you you know how much i've been dreading I'm like oh my god how many more people do i have to find to be able to continue because i was really worried after leviticus uh, so the fact that you want to say that is an answer to my prayer. Oh, that, good. Yeah. Cause it would be really hard for me to, you know, cause not everybody's interested or have time to devote mm -hmm. to this weekly. And I've been asking a lot of people. So yeah, I'm glad that you're able to want to do this. Yeah, I really do. And um, it's been really quite eye opening um, as far as the Lord is concerned. And yeah, he, he opens our our spiritual eye to yeah, see. Yeah, I think he's kind of revealing a lot to me, and I hope to others too through talking about it. You know, it's it's not so much that um, you know, I'm not a scholarly person when it comes to mm -hmm. the Bible, but the fact that I think the wisdom is what I'm trying to get out of you and me to be able to say, oh, it's making a whole lot more sense. Well, and I really like how like. I think this is a work of God, how he helped me to realize the sin of the Abihu and I can't remember the other yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. I forgot his name already. They're hard for me. But the sin of, of the two sons of Aaron Let was that 
made the same sin as as Cain did. Yeah. Rather than having an offering that you have to kill and you have to the people had to work for, and then the the burning of the offering along with the fats, or even go to the wheat which you had to labor for and cultivate, and then make you had to make into a cake and then present to the Lord as a fragrant aroma. It takes all of that work, all of that movement of their will to God, all of that honor in yeah. their work and in them sacrificing time and effort to God, and it takes it away. And then and then what did Aaron Aaron's sons do? They just made a sweet aroma, real cheap, <laughs> with some fire and incense. Yeah. No, and I that's think what, we were spot that's on with that, that they cheated God. I think that couldn't have been any more perfect analogy. Uh, but the thing with Cain, though, God spared Cain. These guys were not spared. Mm-hmm. Well, so, they knew better. They yeah. knew better. They knew all the rules. I mean, oh, God yeah, didn't yeah, yeah. lay out all the rules by. for... Yeah, they spent seven yeah. days in, in God's tabernacle. And this, you know, this follows Christ's principle of too much is given, much is required. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Merry Christmas if I don't talk to you or see you before then. May God be with you and God bless you. Thank you. Same as you and all your family. Bye. Thank you. Bye.